professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Lauren Grush, the space reporter at Bloomberg and formerly senior science reporter at The Verge and author of the new book out today, The Six, about the first six American women astronauts. Welcome to the show. Yay. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this book. I really enjoyed reading it. We are recording this on August 19th, 2023, though this episode will be published on September 12th, 2023, when the book is released. I am drinking a very boring drink, I'm afraid. I'm a little ashamed. This is a Tate chai latte, and Tate is like our local bougie coffee house. We were talking about this before the show started, but I've kind of had a crazy morning. There was like a tornado warning. I was not up for trying anything exciting. Wild. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do you have? It's going to sound really... Fun. I've been getting into kombucha recently, and so I'm drinking mango jalapeno kombucha. And this is from Central Market, which is uh, the fancy H-E-B brand. And I don't know if anyone knows, this is a Texas thing, but H-E-B is a really big Texas chain of grocery stores, and we're very passionate about it here. So hopefully some Texans will know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, wonderful. Cheers. Cheers. My chai latte is soothing and delicious, which is exactly what I need today. How is your your spicy kombucha? That sounds great. It is spicy, which I I love spice, but I also am a big fan of chai. I had one this morning as well. So we're coming full circle. (laughs) So now that we are drinking our drinks, we are going to talk about this new book. Again, it's called The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Woman Astronauts. I really enjoyed reading it. I want to be upfront that I got a, a free copy in advance, but I'll actually say that um, I kind of bugged your publicist a lot to get you on because I was enjoying it so much. Uh, oh, that's so, so great to hear. So I was very persistent because I really thought everyone on the show would like to hear about it. The book busted a couple of stereotypes I had about astronauts. I kind of generally oh, classified them as like lifelong overachievers and rule followers. Those are two things I thought I knew kind of broadly about what astronauts were like. But you describe how Sally Ride was kind of an underachiever in high school and often preferred to watch TV instead of practicing tennis. And several astronauts snuck out of quarantine to see their toddlers or their babies before a launch. Was mm-hmm. that surprising to you as well? Or was that just on me? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also just kind of the collegiate atmosphere, I want to say, of the, of the astronaut press corps. You know, they, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, they really... Um, you know, stretched (laughs) the boundaries of what they could get away with. Um, You know, lots of jokes, lots of ribbing. Like, that's the part I really enjoyed because it, you know, it reminds you of your friends and your family, right? You know, I think we do have this idea that astronauts are the elite of the elite and they don't do anything wrong and they don't make mistakes. And the truth is they're just, you know, they're just humans like us. They have senses of humor and they like to make jokes and they like to do pranks and they also like to, you know, skirt the lines a little bit. And that made me feel a bit closer to them. Whereas normally, you know, there's kind of this like boundary between us and and the astronauts. uh, so I liked I liked kind of breaking that down a little bit. Yeah, there's details and kind of examples and stories that you really get a sense of these people as human beings, which is not something you always get when you're reading, particularly, you know, about Sally Ride, um, who's right. very lionized. And so I, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked that she might have preferred TV to something else at one point in her life. But of course. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think there's also this idea that 
astronauts have been dreaming all their lives to be astronauts. And they've been doing everything that they can to get them to that level. And that kind of idea is intimidating for me because I'll be honest, I didn't know I wanted to be a journalist all my life. You know, it's not this calling that I feel like it is for a lot of people. In fact, I kind of fell into it when I was in college. And so I think it's intimidating when I hear that people have been dreaming to do something or they have this, you know, innate desire to do something. And for some of the women, you know, that just wasn't the case. They were kind of trying to find themselves. They knew they enjoyed science or the particular fields that they had been in, but it wasn't until NASA opened up the selection to a more inclusive class of individuals that they realized, oh, this is something that I have the qualifications for and I could be really good at it. And I think that's just such a great lesson about, you know, why it's important to be inclusive and to open up access because you can find more people than you could have ever imagined that you would need or want for. And then, and Sally was one of those people. I mean, she didn't think about being an astronaut until she saw the article in the Stanford paper. Another interesting theme you explore is how the women broke barriers that were put up around them, you know, specifically people saying that they couldn't do stuff because they were women. And I think it's really nice that since you focus on six women, you can really highlight the different ways that they each reacted to situations. For example, NASA made special space makeup for the women. And Sally Ride had to test it, even though she really had no interest in it because she was the first. But Rhea Seddon wanted to wear makeup if she was going to have her photos in the paper. Can you talk about the different ways that this group of six responded differently to different situations? Absolutely. And that was also kind of surprising to me, which it shouldn't be. Obviously, each human is unique and different. We all have different ways we react to things. But I guess I had this kind of preconceived notion going into the book that, oh, they were going to be this, you know, well-bonded group and they were they were a sisterhood and you know they they were all best friends and they all stood up for each other which obviously they did stand up for each other but you know as as women are today and have always been we are unique uh multifaceted people and some of us get along well with others while others don't get along as well and that was obviously the case for the six um so the the example that you brought up obviously you know some of the women actually might have wanted a makeup kit. And you know what? I can absolutely see it. In fact, I might have been one of them if I was, because there were cameras on them all the time. They were constantly hounded by the press. Every look they did, every move they made uh, was scrutinized. And so obviously, if one of them maybe didn't have the makeup on that they were used to, I'm sure headlines would have come out saying they looked tired or they didn't look well presented or something like that. I mean, that was a real concern. So yes, Ray had mentioned that she had requested some items. Anna Fisher talked about how she worked on the toiletry kit and had put in Nivea cream, which her mother had used. But yes, when it came to Sally, Ride, or Kathy, you know, obviously what went in that makeup kit was of zero concern to them. They were not interested. <laughs> I thought that was particularly funny because I read it and I was like, oh, makeup in space. But then you're totally right. When I've been on the few TV appearances I've made, I've totally wanted makeup. And I told my best friend about it. And she was like, I want space makeup. And I was like, I should have space <laughs> I know, makeup, I think, right? <laughs> I think it's easy to react you know, viscerally when you hear about that or you see it and you're like, oh, my God, what, what a chauvinist thing to do. But 
as mentioned, you know, it is something that is, you know, women definitely enjoy. And I think embracing the fact that we do wear makeup or that we like makeup is just what is being a woman is all about. Some people don't like it, some do, and that is our choice. And that's ultimately okay and fine. And taking it to space is also up to you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that you describe that these women did was kind of a lot of playing in the margins to learn the skills they needed. So for example, they had to learn how to fly planes, but they weren't allowed to land the planes officially. So several would kind of find male co-pilots who would kind of turn a blind eye and let them practice the landing skills. But there's a great story in the book that I'm hoping you'll share about when they went to visit the Boeing factory in Washington. Oh, yes. No, I absolutely love this. So as you mentioned, some of them were pilots when they entered the astronaut corps, but they had really flown, you know, very small planes. Once they joined the space program, they had to stay current in NASA's fleet of T-38 jets. And they, yes, they weren't allowed to be in the front seat because obviously they didn't have the license for that, but they did fly in the back seat and uh, a few of their male counterparts did let them take off and land, which was not, not part of the rules back then. But they got really great at it. And a lot of the men that I spoke to, the former astronauts, they all said they were extremely impressed with their flying skills. And so there was a group of them. This was during their training. They, they still hadn't flown yet. But it was Sally Ride, Judy Resnick, and Anna Fisher, and three of their male astronaut colleagues went up to Boeing uh, in Seattle and they were there to check out the 747, which was used to carry the space shuttle to various locations around the U.S. And one of the Boeing employees that was touring them asked if they wanted to fly the plane. <laughs> and they were like, oh, in the simulator? And they, they said, no, the actual plane. We'll take you on the plane. And so as they're in the plane, they, he's he's asking the women, you know, if they'd, if they'd like to have a go of it, doing the takeoffs and touchdowns, touch and goes, as, as you will. And, you know, there was a brief pause and then one of them piped up and was like, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And so each of them, they'd all take turns, you know, taking off and touching down. And then at, at some point, the the instructor asked Sally, and, and by the way, I've, I've talked about this story with uh, a few of the people were there and they all remember it various different ways. But at one point they do remember that one of the women, probably Sally, they asked, you know, how many, how many hours do you have? Or what planes have you been checked out on? And Sally was like, ah, this, I'm not actually a pilot. <laughs> and the guy just turned completely ghost white, you know, just realizing <laughs> he'd let all of these people without, you know, proper <laughs> proper flying experience to touch down the plane but they all did it great because you know they they'd been practicing and we're we're getting pretty good at it what i think is so funny about that story is i mean not only kind of that it's like a prank <laughs> that <Yeah>. nobody <laughs> wanted to rat anybody out you know none of the astronauts wanted to declare that these women were not certified because they didn't want to make them look bad but also just that it was a little ridiculous <laughs> that they weren't allowed to to do that. And so, yeah. of course, the instructor assumed that they could do it. And they could do it. <laughs> they had they had that ability, and they did it just fine. There's um, also this great story, because Shannon was an avid, Shannon Lucid was an avid flyer before she came into NASA. And one of the things she really wanted to do was to get checked out in the T-38s, because 
there had been some other astronauts who'd come into the program who weren't pilots, but, you know, they got to get checked out in the T-38s when they joined, but the women weren't allowed to do so when they came in and she... Uh, she was very angry about that and she tried to, you know, it's a great exchange of the book, but she was making the point, if this guy who only flew helicopters got to get checked out, why can't I? And they were, they told her, Shannon, you know, he got shot at in Vietnam. (laughs) She goes, well, if I get shot at, can I get checked out in the (laughs) Just great stories like that. They they had such great personalities. It was really so fun to hear those tidbits and, and vignettes. I bet. And that actually leads me to my next question, which is on SpacePod, we talk a lot, not just about the results of people work, but kind of how they did it. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the interviews you conducted. How many hours of interviews did you do? Yeah, I tried to quantify the number of hours. I feel like it was over 100. I wrote this during majority of the COVID pandemic, which I feel like a lot of people were kind of proclaiming, oh, this is the perfect time to write your novel (laughs) because you have all the time in the world. And the truth is that is very far from the case. It was actually quite difficult because all the interviews I did were over Zoom, obviously didn't, uh, you know, a lot of these people were older. And so I obviously did not want to take any risks in that way. So lots of Zoom calls and just finding time for folks all the archives were closed, so I had to do as much as I could virtually. I, I give a shout out to this guy, Paul, at the New York Public Library, who walked me through their not very intuitive archive system, but it was such a help because they have such a great amount of articles and magazines and just a lot of great journalism that really informed the reporting of the time. NASA has a lot of great resources in terms of archives of air-to-ground transcripts, press conferences, press releases, press kits. You know, that that was all extremely valuable. And I also even FOIA'd some information just to get access to some of the video from the press conferences because I have to tell you, those Sally Ride press conferences are a real trip. And just so everyone knows, FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act, which is a, yes. a legal document you have to send in and you wait a bit and then they send you the stuff. And it was also just a lot of tracking down. I, I tracked down some VHS tapes. I have a whole bunch of archival TV news spots from CBS, ABC, NBC, things like that. You get a lot of no's during this process, too, of things that just have been lost to history. I always described it as kind of like a series of wins and losses. You know, sometimes you get something that you're like, oh, I've been needing this. And it confirms something else that you were suspecting. And then also you get a lot of no's where you're just like, okay, well, I have to kind of work around this. But that's what makes it fun and interesting. It is, I think of it as kind of like a puzzle, you know, and a treasure hunt at the same time. I really got the impression that you had listened to every interview. You had like searched every news database and read every article, every magazine, you know, even Absolutely. like comedy shows you're quoting, over the yeah. time, which is great context. It was so fun because I'd gotten the tip to look into the Johnny Carson archives from Lynn Scher's book on Sally Ride. But I dug even deeper to like, listen to all the jokes he made about <laughs> the astronaut women and man, are they terrible. Really <laughs> so uh, we're, we're not know, laughing because was... we're remembering how good the jokes are. <laughs> no, we're laughing to keep from crying. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> Oh, and then I would be remiss if I didn't shout out NASA's Oral History Project. They really put in the time and effort to interview all of the astronauts from this era. They also interviewed key NASA officials, 
executives, you know, that was a really fantastic resource. And, and I pulled a lot from that. And it also led me in various directions that I needed to go. Did you conduct the interviews all at once where you'd be talking to someone for like three hours? Or did you cycle back and be like several interviews over a series of weeks or months? Yeah, so it was the latter. So we would probably do about an hour at a time. But there were some astronauts where I was just like, I need more time. (laughs) So we would talk for an hour, which, you know, doing an interview for an hour is a long time. And I really appreciated them for sitting down with me and taking all of that time. But the hour would be up and I would say, okay, we've we've only scratched the surface of this one year. I <laughs> want to talk about 1978 now, or we got to get into 1980. Um, and so then I would try and work with their schedule. And all of these people, you know, are still pretty busy people. And so it was just finding the right time. So it would sometimes be threaded together. I would talk with one person for an hour and the next day, maybe I was talking to another person. And so it kind of interweaving stories, which made it really interesting. And to hear it from different perspectives also, it's just a great exercise in memory and how how people remember certain things differently. Like for instance, um, Kathy Sullivan talked about in her oral history about when the six were first presented to the press that they had this moment where they all kind of convened in the bathroom and strategized of who they were talking to, like which press members they were talking to, what did they want, what did they ask, and it was this very vivid memory for her. As for the other women, they don't really remember it as vividly, you know, and I think that's just, you know, that's natural. You know, some things flash in our minds and stay there forever, whereas others, you know, don't leave that significant of an impression. And then, so you have this kind of immense, massive amount of information. How do you keep it organized? And how do you like, (laughs) I mean, even before the writing, like, how do you get that all into like, this is going to be what my chapters are. These are the stories I will tell. Yeah, you're, we're getting real inside baseball here. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's what so, this about. <laughs> um, so another author friend of mine turned me on to this application called Scribner. I'm not sure if anyone's mentioned it, but it's a great application that I use to just kind of categorize things. It has a section for all of my research and folders. So I was able to categorize things of like, for instance, press coverage. Then I had a section for TV interviews, videos, but even as organized as I tried to be, you know, I'm still finding things on various corners of my desktop where I'm just like, oh, that's where that is, you know, but I tried to keep it all in this one space, but it, you know, there, there was just an immense amount of detail. (laughs) And then also that way I was able to organize my chapters. And then in terms of the structure of the book, I mean, I have to say it was, it was so, I don't want to say it was easy, um, but it was, it came very naturally, this structure, because it's the way that the lives of these women in the, in the early days of the program played out. It, I don't know. It just, it all fits so naturally, especially with how they were selected, their training, then who became the first American woman. And then with their each subsequent flights, I mean, I was just so blown away at how unique and interesting each of their flights were. And none of them were boring to tell, you know, they all had something unique and novel about each of the flights they did those first six flights. And then in 1986, you had the Challenger tragedy, which included, you know, Judy Resnick, she was 
tragically killed on that flight. And then Sally being part of the investigation, I don't know, just flowed very naturally. Truthfully, there could be like 20 more books about what they did after the six ends because they go on to do amazing things. Obviously, space program did not end a challenger, thankfully, and they would go on to fly again. And then even after they left NASA, you know, they continue to do amazing work in their various professions. I thought it was really interesting, and I think this is your your decade of experience, but how you were able to balance like a high level of detail, including a lot of NASA acronyms. I mean, you can't write about NASA without a ton of acronyms, and that can get really overwhelming to a reader. But, but it's kind of just enough to give you a really kind of sense of the fullness and the complexity. But I never felt like swamped with like, what was a, you know, whatchamacallit thing again, you know? That makes me so glad to hear. Oh, I was just going to say, because... One fun anecdote is, so some background about me is that I grew up with NASA parents. My parents worked on the space shuttle program. So when it comes to the acronyms, they are so bad about that. And it drove me nuts as a kid because they were constantly talking in this like other language and I just could not understand it. And so when I became a space reporter, it's it was very important to me not to speak like that because it's easy to talk like that because once you of course get into <laughs> once you get into the the culture of space and the industry you start to adopt you know the acronyms for things and so it's just easier for you to say the ac- acronym than to keep explaining it to people but as a journalist it's important to remember that you know not everyone knows these acronyms they're not going to know what you're talking about so there's a part where I illustrated the book, just like how crazy the acronyms can get. And so I actually asked my mom to come up with a sentence full of, ac- just like <laughs> make the most acronym heavy sentence that makes sense to you, but would make no sense to anyone. And so if you come across that line in the book, you can thank my mother for that. <laughs> That's so funny you mentioned that because with the level of detail, I was actually also thinking of my mom because my mom worked on the Palapa B1 and Palapa B2 satellites, which get name checked. And it was a funny detail because, you know, I think most people don't be like, oh, yeah, Palapa. But I was like, hey, Palapa, you know, because I had heard a lot about those satellites growing up. Um, And so that was a really lovely detail to include. That's incredible. I love that. Um, So thanks, moms. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, moms, for helping us to understand the weird words of space. (laughs) So, you know, when I usually have scientists on the show, when they publish their results, like on the moon or asteroids or whatever, the moon and asteroids don't read the results. But in this case, you know, a lot of these women are still alive or, you know, their loved ones are, are reading your book. How did that feel to put so much of yourself into this book and then have people who you were writing about have the ability to read it? Um, The anxiety was high, for sure, because as a journalist, obviously, you want to be accurate. And so sometimes that means putting things in that people might not want to be read. I don't think that was that much of a problem with this, but I've had some feedback and so far it has been positive from what I've heard. So that has been nice. But at the same time, I'm trying to do a snapshot of what it was like for them at the time. Sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative. But I also think that's what makes it relatable. You don't want to write a book where everyone is succeeding all the time. 
there'll be no connection there for the reader because yeah, it's not real. <laughs> that's just, it's not realistic. You know, we all go through highs and lows. We all have setbacks. We all have things that make us angry, you know? And I think when you read about people, especially someone like an astronaut going through those similar emotions or, or feeling those feelings that you would also feel in that situation, that just makes it, you know, much more relatable to people and also less intimidating for them to hear about. That's a great answer. And I, it's so good that I forgot my next question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, no problem. Could you talk a little bit about kind of how Sally was chosen to be the first and how that played out amongst the other five? Yeah, so I found that to be a fascinating story because, well, I want to ask you, you know, before you read the book, how did you think astronauts were picked to go to space? You know, how did you think they were chosen? Uh, I mean, I had those stereotypes in mind where they were like the most rule following. <laughs> and so I, for whatever reason, I thought that was the biggest criteria, but that wasn't quite, quite what you know. What I thought was interesting was that it really came down to one man's decision. This guy named George Abbey, who was the director of flight operations at the time at JSC. And he was also instrumental in selecting the astronauts, but also when they had come into the program he put the crews together. And while he made his decisions in collaboration with others, it really was ultimately he kind of had the final say. Now, he did have to justify his decisions to his boss, Chris Kraft, who was the director of JSC at the time. But really, George was the guy. And the astronauts all knew this, and they all kind of, you know, propped him up as this kind of mythological figure. And they tried to game the system to figure out what was the best way to get on his good side. You know, was it going to drinks with him every Friday? Was it being in front of his, right in front of him all the time? So they always dissected the types of assignments that they got from him. You know, was he far away from them? You know, were they, were they off property? You know, was that going to make them lost to his, his eye, you know, but anyway, so I spoke with George and he, he was like, I don't think there was anything strange about my process. <laughs> you know, I just picked people that I thought were best for the job. Whereas, you know, for everyone, it was such this mystery of, you know, how George picked, because he didn't really ever reveal his cards. You know, he didn't explain why he made a decision. He just kind of said, this is how it's going to be. And then people had to, you know, interpret it how they will. And so uh, when it came to picking the first woman to fly, the first American woman, you know, they obviously understood the enormity of that choice. And so while he did select Sally based on her work with the remote manipulator system, the robotic arm, she was by far one of the best. But, you know, Judy Resnick was also quite adept at it at the time, Anna Fisher as well. But I think when George consulted with Bob Crippen, the commander of that mission, you know, they also took into consideration that they thought maybe Sally would be cool under pressure. They knew that whoever was going to get picked was going to have a, a lot of eyes on them and a lot of interest. And so, you know, Sally's ability to brush that off, they thought might be helpful for her. But what I found really fascinating was that Chris Kraft, when they presented Sally as their choice, wasn't actually on board. He thought maybe somebody else would have been better. And so they had to justify it 
to them and I don't I don't want to ruin it but they probably justified it in the most engineering way possible <laughs> so ultimately they convinced Chris Craft that she was the one and Sally went on to make history I thought it was really interesting how you did describe the crushing media and like just total pressure on Sally afterwards of how everyone wanted a piece of her there was one story that really stands out to me where she was kind of there was like an elementary school named after her and she had to go and she like needed a friend. And then as she like pulls up, the kids are all singing a song about her. And she's just like, I can't do this. And I think that's so interesting, right? Because, you know, so many people would want that spotlight, but they kind of picked her because she really didn't. But then it was really rough on her, you know, like that was a tough place to be. Absolutely. She was definitely an introvert at heart. And yeah, I think that really did go a long way. And in her selection to be the first, but you're right. It took a very big toll on her. And at one point she did seek therapy because it was becoming such an overwhelming process for her. You know, she was kind of shielded from all of that interest as much as possible during training because she had so much work to do. But then when she came back, you know, they talk about it like the floodgates opened essentially. And that protection she had during training just completely evaporated. And so, and obviously NASA wanted to show her off and to, you know, be proud of her accomplishments. So they were trying to say yes to as many of these requests as possible, but it's daunting for sure. And at one point, you know, she just disappeared. (laughs) There was one request. She was just like, nope, I'm not going to do it. And then she just kind of vanished. And that was very much a Sally thing to do. You know, she, she didn't really get uh, super emotional about things, but if she didn't like the way something was going, she just kind of removed herself from the situation. Yeah. And you have several interesting examples of how the other women would also kind of push back against things that they thought were inappropriate or just like it was a line they didn't want to cross. Um, And that was, again, interesting to see how six different people react in six different ways. And they're all interesting and valid. Yeah. So for instance, Sally and Judy, I think are so funny because they both, and, and this was true for all of the women, right? None of them wanted to be singled out for their gender. They all wanted to fit in seamlessly with the men. And they just, they wanted to be one of the guys, you know? And it, there's a great story about how Anna and Sally kind of snuck away to Foley's department to go buy khaki shorts and polo shirts, which is the standard engineer outfit. Still is to this day, <laughs> at least for my dad. <laughs> But when it came to any time they were singled out, you know, the way they reacted to it was very different. Like Sally would not put up with any sexist jokes, right? But whereas Judy, Judy would kind of yuck it up with the the rest of the guys, but still at the same time, very much did not put up with anyone kind of singling her out for her gender. But she was just more, I guess, you know, she would give it right back to people. Whereas, you know, Sally would maybe just kind of give you the the cold shoulder. So it's just interesting, you know, just like little things like that about how they reacted, you know, the the nuances in that I think is just what made this story so special because you just get to learn a little bit about each of their personalities and who they were. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite parts of writing this book was I dedicate a chapter to each of their space flights and that was probably my favorite time. Cause like I said, each of their flights and each of their experiences for their inaugural missions were so unique and so interesting. And for instance, you know, Judy had a pretty scary abort during her first flight 
and I was the first mother and there was a storyline that goes with that you know it was such a dream to write because the space flights were so fun and I look forward to people reading about their flights and, and learning about them and also just learning how you know the shuttle worked I mean the shuttle is a very, very close to my heart since uh, I grew up with the shuttle. Uh, my parents were very involved with the space shuttle program. In fact, my mother even worked on the refueling experiment that Kathy worked on. And I have some pictures of her very young working on a notebook while all the astronauts around her are chatting. So it means a lot to me to come kind of full circle and and to talk about this program that had such a big impact on my childhood. Yeah, and I loved those chapters too. They were it was real page turners, like something exciting is happening on every page. You're like, oh, what happens on this next uh, next launch? Is it going to launch? Like what's going to happen? And they were all so different that I just really flew through those chapters yeah. rather fast and Honestly, stayed up pretty late. <laughs> all credit to the women and their flights for that. It was, it was, all I did was just write it down, you know, but they actually lived it and it was, it was pretty easy to, to make it interesting because it was. And, and I really feel like, one thing that you capture that is sometimes missing from descriptions of going to space is like, what does it feel like? You know, that's what everyone wants to know. But but you talk about the smells, the physical sensations, all of that I thought was super fascinating. Right, I know. And I feel like there was even room for more, you know, because when Sally first flies in the book, you know, you spend a little more time on that sensation and what it's like to first get to space. But then, you know, we kind of have to move on throughout the next space flight. And so I tried to touch on the issues with microgravity and various contexts with each flight. And, you know, they all have their own experiences. Some of them didn't really adapt well to space flight. Some of them did. And that's, that's true of everybody that goes to space. Some get really sick and some don't. And so each one, you know, reacted very differently. And it was, you know, interesting to see those various experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So once again, the book is called The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Woman Astronauts. It's by you, Lauren Grush, and it's available in stores and online today. If people want to follow you on social media, where should they go? Sure. So I'm on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Lauren Grush, uh, but it's L-O-R-E-N, uh, which has been a thorn in my side. No, I, I love my spelling of my name, but... I constantly get the AU version. So Lauren Grush, L-O-R-E-N-G-R-U-S-H. I'm also on Instagram at Grush Crush. Um, I've dabbled in all the various Twitter alternatives, but I've, they, I'm not very prolific on there, so I probably should get better about it. But I'm also Lauren Grush on those platforms as well. Yeah, I've, I've decided to flee the Twitter-like things and <laughs> wait for it to settle down. <laughs> it's just too many. It's just too many and... You know, it's hard to keep up. And so I'm kind of declaring social media bankruptcy at the moment. But <laughs> I promise I promise to be more proactive and, and prolific soon. Well, great. Thank you so much for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the book, The Six, we get to hear a fun fact about Lauren. I was thinking about this. I, I mean, I think I already said it earlier. You know, I grew up in Houston outside NASA's Johnson Space Center. And so one thing I think everyone always loves to hear is that I went to NASA summer camp, <laughs> uh, which is probably as nerdy as it seems. Um, <laughs> like lots, we did like scientific presentations, you know, for activities. I know we did various like talent shows and things like that. It was definitely, and it was all kids of NASA people, you know, convened in one place. So the nerd energy was very high. That sounds amazing and super adorable. <laughs> 
<laughs> a bunch of nerdy kids who love um i'm sure listeners can relate <laughs> yes well thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show i really appreciate it and thanks for writing the book it was super interesting very educational great read couldn't recommend it highly enough great i'm so glad you enjoyed it i think we we're saying earlier a pandemic book was hard to write so a very isolating experience but now that people are reading it it means a lot to me to hear that it's connecting with folks absolutely well thanks again Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron 3030. Huge thanks to Deltron 3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.